0: Welcome to Policy, Guns & Money, the Aspie podcast. I'm David Rowe. Today's episode was recorded on the sidelines of our Disruption and Deterrence Conference. ASPE's Alex Caples talks about government, industry and innovation with Sean Singleton, partner and VP of Business Development at America's Frontier Fund. Sean is brimming with good advice. He talks about lessons from the Pentagon's groundbreaking Defence Innovation Unit in Silicon Valley, how to make the best use of hard-earned intellectual property and how to go from chasing shiny objects to solving priority problems. Sean can even riff on Indiana Jones movies and The Beatles, so I'm sure you'll enjoy the conversation. Hello, everybody. Uh, I'm Alex Caples. I'm the Director of Cybertech and Security here at ASPE. I'm joined by Sean Singleton, Partner and Vice President of Business Development at America's Frontier Fund. And we've been privileged to have Sean as a panellist at ASPE's Disruption and Deterrence Conference over the past few days. Sean, you spoke at your panel on the relationship between innovation, industry and capability. A number of the panel sessions over the past few days have circled this issue of industry and government collaboration on emerging and disruptive tech and essentially how we can do that better, how governments understand technology landscapes that are mostly in the hands of private industry, how they consistently articulate their needs, and then of course, how we harness and integrate tech effectively. You've emphasised how difficult that has proven to be and perhaps to set the scene you could briefly speak to what the key challenges are that you see for that collaboration.
1: Well, thank you so much for your time uh, today and then also for the question. You know, one of the things that I've seen over this past 20 years is that people do what I'd like to say is chase the shiny object and they fixate on the technology without really an understanding of how they're going to leverage it and so they want to chase chat gpt they want to go ahead and chase robotics they want to do all of these different grandiose things and once they actually have it they don't know what they're going to do with it and so what i've seen that works well is vo- viewing it as more like a business process reengineering exercise and sort of start by saying what's the problem that we're trying to address first and then work backwards from there because my overwhelming presumption is is that if you think something can exist it will eventually but exactly what do you want it to do over the time that you're actually investing in it? And just, again, work backwards from there.
0: Of course. That, I mean, this is really very much that defence process, this this conference primarily focused through a defence lens, but, but that what effect do I want to achieve question, then working back through what is essentially an engineering process. And the US has experimented with a range of mechanisms intended to kind of do that, I suppose, to foster innovation, to harness it properly. Paul Sherry made the point yesterday that uh, it's not enough just to have the technology there, as you say, to to see that next shiny object. But it's also about who harnesses it best and how you how you do that, and knowing what effect you need to achieve. So, one of the mechanisms that the US used was, uh, or, or has been, um, working on for the last decade or so is the Defense Innovation Unit, and you've been pretty heavily involved in that. Can you just take us through why and how that was set up?
1: Yeah. And so Maynard Halliday, who was on the uh, panel earlier today, or had a fireside chat, talked a little bit about the origins, or sort of the origin story there is, you know, Secretary Carter was the first Secretary of Defense that had come to Silicon Valley in over a generation. And so Bill Perry was his mentor, and Bill Perry was working at Stanford University, Hoover Institute, and there in Silicon Valley, you just exposed to technology, but one of the things, as an outside observer, again, you're prone to the shiny object. You say, well, there's great technology there, but what you don't realize is that the technology that actually flourishes is there to address a specific client problem, right? And so Secretary Carter recognized that the Department of Defense needed a lot of things from the private sector that weren't coming from the traditional crimes, and it's not their own fault that there wasn't coming from them because the incentive structures aren't aligned to where you actually get cutting-edge technology, but you could go to silicon valley and have these folks work on priority problems and then bring them back into the department of defense the first wave of diu what i called diu 1.0 were very well intentioned folks that were hyper intelligent but they had never been in the private sector and as a result of that they would meet with entities and they would have several conversations with them but there were no deals that were being discussed It was technological exploration, but not necessarily actually consummated in a transaction. Well, if you spend any time in any venture capital ecosystem, especially in Sand Hill Road and Silicon Valley, time is the most precious resource. And so if you're not in a third conversation talking about a specific transaction, you're officially in the wasting time category. So the first wave of DIU did that for a period of nine months to where Secretary Carter received a couple of phone calls from some very prominent people in the Valley that says you're wasting time here. If you're really serious, you need to bring in a new cadre of people that understand the way the Valley operates that can also translate the problems that you have more succinctly back into the companies that actually will solve them. And oh, by the way, you need to have acquisition authority. That is the most important thing is that if you're not able to go ahead and have a conversation and say, I will be able to do this deal with you, again, you're really wasting people's time.
0: So you're really looking there at needing an understanding of the effect you need to achieve, perhaps an, a degree of open-mindedness about the technology um, that you see and how you uh, thinking about how you might then apply that. Equally, a group of people who understand how business works and how you can translate that from industry to government. And from a government point of view, you need an, an authorising environment, an enabling environment. Those are the kind of four factors that really make this thing work. Um Lessons learned over the past 10 years beyond that Carter one. How did, how did Carter two do with DIU?
1: So, when the group of people came in under Raj Shaw, I like to say, at least up until now, it was the golden era of DIU. And the reason why I say that is because the business process that we pioneered and put in place was that you had to have a priority problem if you were a government customer. And you had to have dollars associated with that priority problem because if you didn't have dollars associated with it, it really wasn't a priority problem. And last and definitely not least and probably the most important, you need to have sweat equity in the actual process in and of itself. So it's nice to have the dollars. It's nice to have the problem. But if you're not committed to actually scaling it at the end of the pilot prototype, then you're wasting everyone's time. And so all of the DIU customers come in with those three things and the ability to, once the pilot is done, you scale it out, and then you actually have a program of record, for lack of a better term, to where these entities can now go to investors in the private sector and say, we're doing this for the Department of Defense or the intelligence community. You should actually want to go ahead and invest in us because these use cases that we're addressing for DOD and the intelligence community are commercially applicable. And so when I go back to the golden day, golden heyday of DIU, you look at things like Shield AI, which is an autonomous drone company that came out of that. Project Kessel Run, which is the agile software development, that came out of DIU. What was the Joint Artificial Intelligence Center came out of DIU during this period of flourishment. Um, Companies like C3AI that actually had a $1 billion pop in their valuation because of the DIU contract saw a lot of value in the engagement model. That all came to a crashing halt, though, when a large Fortune 200 company recognized that there was a contract vehicle that was let that would have had potentially a $1 billion economic value to this small company. They lodged a protest to the general um, accounting organization, GAO, and that protest was sustained. And as a result of that, that contract was terminated. And once that contract was terminated, that sort of set DIU back a number of years in the eyes of Silicon Valley. And so that was probably the biggest lesson learned is that they brought a really innovative process to Washington, D.C., and Washington, D.C. rejected that innovative process.
0: And that was risk aversion in a political sense or, uh, I suppose, potentially vested interests in the Valley. What what was the kind of proponent there?
1: So what ended up happening is that this Fortune 200 corporation saw the DIU contract as being a precursor of a much larger acquisition that DOD was contemplating. Come to find out, they were completely separate apart. Mm, There was no nexus there. As a result of that, the protest was sustained, the contract was cancelled, And then the much larger acquisition in and of itself was also protested and was eventually canceled and scrapped. And actually, I think the Department of Defense, this is in a cloud migration space, has come out with a number of other solicitations to replace the momentum that was lost a few years back. And so it was this company seeing uh, its competitive position largely degraded. And as a result of that, they went ahead and launched this protest. Since that time, this organization has better understood the DIU business model to where I think that they're more proponents of the organization as opposed to detractors. But again, it set the organization back several years and hamstrung Mike Brown when he was there for the, you know, four years that he was when he was running the organization.
0: And, and look, good good obviously to see that I think as we've discussed DIU Largely back on track, largely having some of those efforts now recognised and and seeing some of these processes um, and I I suppose that authorising environment embedded to a degree but really points to the need for two-way communication and transparency so that industry understands what government's trying to do and government likewise uh, doesn't take necessarily perhaps the, the typical government bureaucratic mindset to how you fund, invest and grow innovation.
1: Spot on. And just to build on that, I think what also has happened is that DIU has been elevated again back to reporting to the Secretary of Defense. So Secretary Lloyd Austin is the person that Doug Beck, who's now the new director of DIU, he reports into. Having that direct connection to the number one decision maker in the Pentagon helps tremendously. Because once that protest happened, DIU was demoted a couple of levels down to where it was viewed more of a tech exploration organization as opposed to a contracting getting things done organization. Now with it being elevated again back into the Secretary of Defense, it now has the visibility and it actually has the air cover, for lack of a better term, to do great things. The other thing, too, is that because of the deals that DIU has done on it since you know inception, you now have commercial <laughs> entities that are lobbying on behalf of it, on Capitol Hill that are actually having conversations in the Pentagon. Eric Schmidt is one of the biggest proponents of DIU, right? When you have someone like an Eric Schmidt that's advocating, you know, greater degrees of freedom for an organization, it's really hard for the department to say, no, we're not going to listen to you. So
0: True. That is a, that is a big name to have in your corner. Uh, I mean, you and I had this good discussion at yesterday's conference dinner about funding innovation and those opportunities for mutual benefit if governments are prepared to take that more commercial approach, and that's that combination of investment and profit sharing, and I want to get to that point in a moment, and reinvestment as well um, taking us beyond the idea that we have an understanding of the effect that we want to achieve and we're going to throw seed funding at it and then kind of hope that it scales Um, and that i think is has been anyone who's worked in and around government in australia for a period of time will have seen that happen for various projects Uh, pilot funding for a year perhaps two years with no no plan necessarily for how you move beyond that to scale it into a commercial environment so that's a fairly, I think, nascent conversation in Australia, particularly as regards defence, um, one that will play out in, in the form of ASCA uh, and AUKUS, of course. But how does that work in the US? And, and perhaps this is where we bring in the American Frontier Fund and the work that you're doing there since 2021, uh, looking at the ways in which we can bring government on a perhaps a more commercial journey.
1: Oh, excellent question. And so, um, I'll go into the America's Frontier Fund and then I'll augment it with some of the DIU experiences and some of the other things that I'm seeing separate and apart from America's Frontier Fund. And so America's Frontier Fund shares mitochondrial DNA with InQtel, which is the intelligence community's venture capital arm. Gilman Louis, who is the CEO of InQtel, is also our CEO of America's Frontier Fund. And Gilman and I have known each other for the better part of a decade. He's been a great, and tremendous mentor. He's one of the greatest Americans that most people don't know exists, but he's done a lot of things behind the scenes to you know, make sure that we are beyond parity of our near-peer competitors. And so one of the things that he and Eric Schmidt and others identified when they were on the National Security Commission for Artificial Intelligence was that there was a lack of investment going into deep tech or hardware-intensive technologies. And so we at AFF were looking to go ahead and raise up to a half billion dollars to deploy into Frontier Technologies that can go ahead and, again, keep the U.S. economically competitive. And if it actually gets into national security, you know, beyond a parity of, again, of those peer competitors or near-peer competitors. Um, the thing that is really interesting about AFF is that we're not a dual-use focus fund. Again, it's going to be economic competitiveness that we're trying to grow. And we would love to be the backstop capital for a number of things that might not necessarily have the opportunity to actually find government funding until the government is in a position to, say, take advantage of a capability, right? That's the long-term vision of what we're seeking to do. We also want to be able to go ahead and go to the universities and the labs across the country and find intellectual property that we can build teams around. That we can then go ahead and expose to you know the commercial markets over time to where they'll have a liquidity event, either they get acquired, or if they're lucky, they have uh, you know an initial public offering, an IPO. Because if you do transactions repeatedly, that's when you build up that halo effect where people actually want to come in and take on the priority problems of whatever your client happens to be, whether it's the Department of Defense or if it's somebody in the metals and mining or in the oil and gas space, right? And so that's what we're seeking to do. From an AFF perspective, where it ties into DIU is, is that DIU needs to work hand in hand with the public sector to find the priority problems, because if we know what the government's priority problems are, as we're foraging for technology from an AFF perspective, we can go ahead and match that back to what the priority problems happen to be.
0: And are we talking here, I mean we are talking here, as you've said, about this idea that you're not necessarily looking at a defence problem, it's DIU and it's and it's AFF, of course, but looking at perhaps national problems or problems of national importance, but equally being able to find a dual use component there potentially, one that may not necessarily immediately obvious in the short term any good recent examples of uh, i know we talked about iphone patents for example last night but any good recent examples that you can think of that have come out of diu where whereby you actually see the value in a slightly different way but nonetheless defense at some point does see the value
1: yeah and so what we talked about last night was that there's over 40 different pieces of intellectual property that went into the construction of an iphone right and so a lot of intellectual property exists on the cutting room floor, for the lack of a better term, that the Department of Defense or NASA and others have left there. And folks like Steve Jobs and now Tim Cook have actually picked up and they've actually made world-class products. Right? When you go and you look at some of the DIU portfolio companies, Sail Drone, which has these autonomous platforms going around the world collecting weather data and sensory data and then giving it back into a central repository to where it's being you know, parsed and analyzed, that's another company out there that's doing some great things. Um, you know, I come back to, to, to shield AI, which is a company that I think this probably the best manifestation of going from priority problem all the way to like, you know, unicorn status (laughs) to where this was an idea that was started by two brothers, one who has been a serial entrepreneur and the other one was a Navy SEAL. He came back from his deployments and said, it would be nice to know what's on the other side of a door before I kick it in. Wouldn't it be nice to go ahead and have a drone that's leveraging, in this case, LiDAR technologies to map out a building, right? So they went ahead and they pioneered that. They were able to get on contract with us from a pilot prototype standpoint. Get a phone call from Scott Cooper, who is was at the time the managing general partner of Genevieve Sinhar, which is one of the biggest venture capital firms in the world, saying, what are your thoughts with regards to Shield AI? And I said, well, sir, as a uh, government representative, I'm not allowed to lobby on behalf of a company, but we're satisfied with their performance. And we love to, you know, continue the relationship going forward. Based off of all of the aggregate due diligence information that they did, Andreessen led a $10.5 Series A on the company. The last round that they did, a Series E, now values the company at $2.5 billion. To be able to go ahead and do those types of things, And working in concert with DIU is what I think AFF could actually, you know, go ahead and actually amplify DIU's position, right? Because what we will be able to do on behalf of DIU is to have conversations on Capitol Hill that they might not necessarily be able to do. We might be able to go ahead and work with some of the systems integrators that would open up some of the doors for some of the DIU portfolio companies. And if it makes sense, then we would be able to go ahead and cut checks into them does that answer your question
0: it does it does and also i think for me the piece that's really quite interesting there is what is it that government needs to do to to make that happen or to enable those those kinds of conversations to happen that discussion and and i think that investment we're talking kind of evergreen funds and so on before re- reinvestment and making sure that there's consistent signals to the market from government around where where investment will occur based less around perhaps, as you say, the shiny technologies and more about um, long-term objectives so that we're really making sure that there's a consistent signal to government, from government rather about innovation um, and where people should be investing, but equally where companies perhaps will see benefit in reinvesting some of the profits.
1: And so on that end, I, I, I come back down to it, focusing on the priority problem that you seek to solve is probably the best way of creating these types of liquidity events for the firms. And the reason why is because oftentimes the priority problems that government have are the same priority problems that the public sector has. I mean, DOD is going to be getting upwards of 87% of what it needs from the commercial sector, right? That's going to be applicable to the department. Why not go ahead and work with these companies that are focused on the commercial sector and just have them tweak their capability a little bit to address your priority problem? Because if you address that priority problem, that's the product market fit already there. They go ahead and they have the liquidity event, and you've engendered yourself to that entrepreneur to where they want to come back and repeat that process over and over and over again. Mark Andreessen is on record saying if it wasn't for the United States Army, he probably wouldn't have become Mark Andreessen as quickly as he did. His first enterprise customer from Mosaic Netscape was the United States Army. As a result of that, Mark Andreessen is one of the most plugged-in people in all of the dual-use market space because he just knows how that process works. You start with a problem, you bring in the company, you solve the problem, you have liquidity the event, and then you rinse and repeat over and over and over again. That's what I'm hoping that governments can do is to sort of just say, hey, these are our problems. We have the acquisition frameworks in place that if you go ahead and pioneer this pilot prototype, we are going to help you entity scale it. One of the things that we do in the States that I'm really concerned about, and it's becoming less of an issue now, is that we will invest in these fledgling companies through our small business innovation research grants, right? And it's wonderful to get one of these SBIRs, that they're called, because it actually helps prove out the technology, one of the biggest shortcomings from it, though, is that the government doesn't incur an obligation to actually help that entity scale it, right? So I think one of the talks is going is how do you take the SBIR process and marry it with a DIU process to where once you get to a phase three, the government incurs more of a responsibility of helping that company scale. It's about doing deals. The more deals you do, the more impact that you'll have as a government and the more you'll actually see your mission objectives realized.
0: How about then... You mentioned before that there is a lot of IP on the cutting room floor, so to speak. Um, Defence potentially sponsoring things that, or government potentially sponsoring innovation, where we don't, we've got a solution almost in search of a problem. We don't yeah, know no. what that problem is necessarily, but someone like a Steve Jobs can take three or four different patents and say, actually, this is how I see these things stitching together to create, at the end of the day, an iPhone. Which of course, then everybody uses and and kind of lifts all boats as far as economic prosperity goes, and everybody sees the benefit of that. How do you take that? What is it? Is there anything there that defence can do around taking that IP on the cutting room floor and turning that into a commercial arrangement that then uh, that then essentially is reinvested in defence capability?
1: Have you ever seen the movie Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom?
0: I, I don't know anyone who hasn't seen that movie. Okay,
1: okay. You know at the very end when they put the Ark of the Covenant away in a crate and they put it in the back <laughs> of a warehouse? You're that's basically the Department of Defense. I've always said, and this you know, was really relevant in DIU, DOD is the caretaker of the biggest graveyard of intellectual property in the world. What DOD could do is to have periodic events, or mechanisms to where you can say, this is in our repository of intellectual property. We're going to give this to you, or we're going to give you access to it. We would love to sort of see what you could actually invent out of this, right? There, from what I have seen so far, there isn't a mechanism that says that this is, first off, A, catalog, so we know what we have, and then B, we're going to go ahead and offer you up these capabilities, If the department was able to do something along those lines, I could easily see some of the top-tier firms on Sand Hill Road, some of the top defense industrial-based primes doing it, and some of the ones that are so focused in on, say, metals and mining, oil and gas, agriculture, coming in and saying, hey, what do you have, DOD, that I might be able to go ahead and exploit? If the department were wise, in one person's opinion, have an agreement to where if they're able to go ahead and commercialize that intellectual property, what kind of an arrangement would the United States government be able to put in place to where they would get proceeds back that would augment, you know, the development of that intellectual property? I, as a taxpayer, would love to see a program like that to where we're actually getting, a, you know, value based off of the dollars that we've all committed as taxpayers. I don't know if the thinking is advanced like that on Capitol Hill, but I think it's a worthwhile endeavor to sort of try to pursue.
0: Yeah I agree I mean I think it's an interesting conversation to at least have how do we not a question I thought I would ask ever but uh, how do we open the ark of the covenant but equally then how do we how do we make sure that um if if that ip that's originally been spun out of defence or defence science and technology groups uh ends up in a commercial setting and actually makes money then h- how do we make sure that that's some of that percentage of that profit gets ditched back into defence to in terms of reinvesting in capability Certainly a really interesting question, um, possibly one that is uh, slightly further down the track from an Australian point of view, just in terms of that kind of military-civil complex, military-industrial complex, but um, one that's worth considering nonetheless.
1: Absolutely. And I think AFF is going to be very vital in that conversation if it ever happens. And what I mean by that, again, is our business model is to go and find intellectual property and try to commercialize it. And so we've had some conversations with DARPA because DARPA you know, has generated a ton of intellectual property out there that might not have been transitioned. And so we are in some discussions with them about how do we get access to you know, the things that they do in fact have cataloged that we can go ahead and commercialize and build that out. Because we do operate as a 501c3 and some component within our organization, we can actually operate with greater degrees of freedom than just for the for-profit side of things. And so if we're able to go ahead and pioneer a process of commercializing that innovation, hopefully we can share that process with other for-profit entities and other governments out there about what we're doing.
0: Well, I mean, to me, that would fit naturally under that kind of AUKUS Pillar 2 type arrangement where we're relevant, um, but equally through other sort of tech-sharing partnerships and so on as well. So, so- – Although it is not a direct uh, analogue in Australia, ASCA is, is sometimes touted in Australia as being the new DARPA. It, the, the systems are reasonably different, of course, but do, does the American Frontier Fund have a natural partner here in Australia? Is that something that you, that, where you have somebody here in Australia doing essentially the same sorts of things that you're doing in the States?
1: Yeah, so there are a couple of entities out there um, that are having discussions with another part of AFF that's tied to the quad, the Quad Investor Network, right? And so I don't have much visibility into that side of our business, but I know that they've had extensive conversations both here in Australia, India, and Japan, the other member nation states of the quad. And so I think that there's going to be a lot of activity that will take place over these next 12, 18 months specifically as it relates to that portion of the process. I just had a conversation with a, uh, an investor, an ultra high net worth investor that's based here. Um, and I said, you know, from a deal perspective, we would love to sort of see what you're looking at, because that would be something that could be, again, accretive to what we're doing over at AFF. If this is an entity that's Australian based and looking to break into the U.S. markets, we might be able to go ahead and actually help them. And so creating that virtuous cycle to where there's collaboration, because I can tell you for a fact, things don't become real until you're doing deals. Once you do deals, then will you tease out all of the different nuances associated with the transaction and how that collaboration partner might operate? And so we haven't identified a definitive partner here yet in Australia, but we are open to having conversations as to whether or not we can go ahead and roll up sleeves and actually do deals together.
0: So the quad uh, arrangement's been in place for some time now. And I think from an Australian point of view, we have seen the quad Tech network, the quad working group has been developed. Uh, government, I think, is thinking through where its priorities lie. Um, some of those problems that you talked about, Sean, understanding where your priority problems lie on this, and obviously, of course, you know, you know, uh, a pact that has four countries as members, looking at opportunities for coordination, collaboration, areas of mutual interest, and so on. We're also at a stage where we have the Quad Investors Network and various other quad industry groups, if you like, whether formally or informally aligned, uh, who I think are really at this point of seeking some guidance from government around where they engage, how they engage, what those problems look like, um, where the kind of big bets for the future are uh, and where they should be really putting their money, looking really for certainty as, as most investors do. Just wondering whether you're able to give us a bit of a rundown of, of how that played out in the US system and and perhaps any tips for how we would work through making sure that that conversation occurs sensibly, clearly, where that communication fits in. It
1: makes complete sense and, you know, just what little I know of the Quad because, again, that hasn't been an area of focus for me. And I just come back down to it as like, you know, what are the problems that we're trying to solve? And, in fact, I'd, even before I'd say well, what are the problems, Five years from now, what do we want this to look like, right? What would success look like in the eyes from an Australian perspective? Based off of whatever the nation comes back with, then bring in potential stakeholders, sort of look at that to sort of see if that's actually even remotely possible. And if it is remotely possible after some level of calibration, I can't stress it enough, start doing deals because we can go and iterate all day long as far as policy, what it should look like and whatever, whatever, whatever. But until you actually do a deal, it's not real. You know, all plans fail when they have, when they encounter first contact, right? You have to always adjust. And so that's what I would recommend is, you know, sort of say, this is what we want it to look like, work backwards from there, figure out what are the priority problems that might be tied to a transaction and start doing deals and then sort of looking over time to sort of chew up that vision based off of the feedback that you're getting from the transactions.
0: And those deals, I think, importantly, don't need to be perfect. They need to be iterative for work in progress. The next deal will be slightly better. The next deal than that will be slightly better. Is the key, really, that we just have to start.
1: Absolutely. So are you a music
0: fan? Always.
1: So if you're a Beatles fan like I am, The first three Beatles albums were largely covers with some original, right? They didn't start off doing Rubber Soul or Revolver, and they sure didn't start off doing Abbey Road.
0: It was liverpool B sides all the way.
1: Exactly. And so they had to mature, right? The most important thing is that they actually did it. They started recording, and they discovered their voice literally and morphed into the greatest band of all time, my opinion. (laughs) That's what it takes. Just go ahead and start and see where the process takes you and then chew it up and refine it to actually find perfection over time.
0: Is the obstacle to that a risk appetite? I think one of the conversations that we continually have here, uh, I suppose, about the difference between Australian and American environments is that in Australia, failure is failure, and it's not necessarily regarded well, Um, uh, whereas in the States there is much more of a sense that failure is part one of your road to learning and innovation and success. It's, It's a... It's fast-fail, it's it's iteration rather than perhaps a, a general indictment of your character or ability. Um, so so in that respect, I think potentially the Australian government may be more risk-averse uh, as far as the innovation relationship there. I'm wondering how, if you've got any thoughts based on the DIU experience, how you get through that. What What are the ways in which you facilitate government starting something where it doesn't necessarily know where it's going to end?
1: Got it. Well, I say our governments are actually largely similar. There is still a huge risk aversion as it relates to DIU and the degrees of freedom in which it operates. When it was created in 2015, 2016, there were a ton of antibodies that existed out there that said that this is antithetical to the way the department should operate. And then what happened was was that it got momentum from doing small deals and then medium-sized deals. And unfortunately, we had that you know, Icarus moments where we flew too close to the sun, at least temporarily, to where we got our hands slapped and then we actually had to sort of, you know, build the organization back up again. But it took a while for the organization to build up enough of a corpus of deals that mattered to where the department could get actually quite sanguine about, you know, its operations. Again, I come back to the department here, Ministry of Defense, with ASCA. One of the things that I've seen is that they don't have acquisition authority just based off of DIU, that was a game changer and made that organization relevant. And so having ASCA have as much political top cover as possible, being able to go ahead and do transactions, however limited those transactions are, as long as they're doing deals, I think will go a long way to actually decreasing the risk aversion that exists here in the Commonwealth of Australia.
0: That's really excellent. Thanks, Sean. I think so have a good idea of your problem. Start start small, but the important thing is that you start and have the acquisition authority recognizing that some of these projects will bring you opportunity, but, but in order to, to kind of harness innovation properly, you do really need to, at times to be prepared to fail.
1: Absolutely. And through the failure, you actually get learnings, right? And through those learnings, new doors open up because until you start that process, you don't necessarily know what you don't know. And that's what we found out in Spades at DIU, and that's what we're going to find out with AFF. Is that you know, as we take shots on goal and do deals and actually work with our portfolio companies and grow them, there are going to be whole sorts of learnings that we will have then that we don't have now.
0: Well, I hope and trust that you'll come back and share some of those learnings with us uh, as you go forward. And I think, particularly from our point of view, interested to see uh, how ASCA takes some of some of these ideas forward in and of itself, and whether or not those projects uh, start to look the same. Thanks so much, Sean. Once again, always an enlightening conversation and we'd love to have you back on the podcast at the oh. future stage.
1: Thank you so much, Alex. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thanks for listening to the Aspie podcast. That's all we have time for today, but we'll be back with another episode soon.